There's an old story that preachers like to tell. It goes something like this. There's an old guy, and he had quite a few acres in his, in his backyard, and he was wanting to clear them out, get rid of the trees so that his grandkids could have some room to run around and just enjoy the, the outdoors a little bit. So, you know, he gets his axe, and he gets out there, and he starts trying to chop down some trees, and he got about seven down the first day. And he thought, man, at this rate, this is going to take me forever. I've got hundreds of trees. So he went to the hardware store, and he asked the guy working there, he said, hey, um, you know, I got all these trees to chop down, and this axe isn't really getting me very far. You got anything you'd recommend that could help me out? The guy at the hardware store says, oh, I got just the thing. It's a chainsaw. This, this will uh, take those trees down in no time. You, you might, if you work hard, get 100 down in a day. And the old guy said, well, that would be great. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll buy one of those. And so he buys one, and he goes home, and he works the rest of the night, works all day the next day, and comes back and says, hey, you know what? This, this chainsaw you gave me, it just doesn't work. I, I worked as hard as I could all, all night last night, all day today, and I could only get one tree down with this thing. And the guy at the hardware shop, he says, oh, you, you must have been doing something wrong. I'm telling you, if, if you use this thing right, you'll get, you'll get 100 down in a day if you work really hard. Try, try it one more time. And the old guy says, all right, I'll give it one more shot. And he, and he goes back, and he, again, he works all night. He works the next day as long as he could. And he comes back, and he says, you know, I've had it. I'm, I'm sorry. This just isn't working. I worked as hard as I could, and I couldn't even get a tree down this time. Nothing. He's like, I've got to return it. And the guy at the shop says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that, that you haven't had any, any luck with it. You know, let me... Uh, I'd be glad to take it back, but there's got to be something wrong with it. Do you, do you mind if I come out to your property and just see if I can't just help try to see what's wrong with it? And the guy says, oh, that'll be great. You know, come over anytime. And so when the guy got off work, he goes to the property, and, and he brings the chainsaw out, and he, and he steps back, and he pulls the cord, and the guy jumps back. He says, what in the world is that noise? We kicked off, uh, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> we kicked off our new series, Blueprints of a Healthy Church, last week. And the instruction was given to the apostles that the Holy Spirit was coming. And that, hey, you, you need just to wait until the Holy Spirit comes because he will empower you to do this mission, this great, glorious mission that you've been called to. But you've got to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and to be given to you. And the same Holy Spirit who empowered the apostles in that day is the same Holy Spirit who empowers us today. But sometimes I fear we can be like that man in the story. We can forget who resides within us in the power that he has given us. So this morning, we'll get a sense of just how powerful the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is. Go ahead, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verses 1 through 13. And we're entering a story where you need to know just the background a little bit. At this time in Jerusalem, you've got more than 3 million people who were jammed into the streets and the alleyways of Jerusalem. The law required that Jewish men from all over the surrounding area who live within 20 miles of Jerusalem to show up. And so at this time, during the time of Pentecost, during this celebration, businesses were stopped, the stores were closed, because this was a national holiday. And so many Jews, they, they would travel from all over, from surrounding nations, 
to come and to be here. They would, they would start, they would arrive in Jerusalem at uh, Passover. And oftentimes they would just wait the whole 50 days. And this was their vacation. This was their time of celebration. And so within a few days after this, there would be a mass exodus from the city when hundreds and maybe even thousands of pilgrims would begin their journey home. But unknown to them at this time, when they were there in the streets and the alleyways of Jerusalem, they were not aware of the plan of God. The celebration of Pentecost was about to be fully and finally Fulfilled. There would be a dawning of a new dispensation. It was only hours away when the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would permanently enter, seal, and empower believers of the church for the rest of human history. All right, Acts 2, 1 through 13. you got to see this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and said, they are filled with new wine. As the day of Pentecost arrives, the believers are together. It's only been a few days, maybe a week, since Jesus ascended into heaven. And I imagine they're, they're still praying. They're being faithful. They're doing just what Jesus told them to do. They're waiting because they know that something amazing is going to happen, that God is going to give the Holy Spirit just as he promised. And they're waiting for what God is going to do and how he's going to empower them to live out this grand mission that he's called them to. But notice here, they're doing this together. As God drew up the blueprints of a healthy church, one primary factor of a healthy church, one primary mark of a healthy church is relational intentionality. Relational intentionality. You know, one of the modern ideas that has unfortunately crept into the many churches today is this idea of individualistic faith. God has not saved us to live the Christian life alone. Christianity at its very core is an interdependent faith because we've each been gifted uniquely with gifts of the Holy Spirit to edify, to encourage, to benefit one another in the body of Christ. We've been saved into a body of believers, into a family of believers. You know, you know this idea that the most important time that you will ever have with God is the time that you will have in your quiet time alone with God. 
This fantasy that the most important, the sweetest moments that you will ever have with God are the times that you have alone with God. These are ideas and fantasies that must be put to death in the church. Because we have not been saved to an individualistic faith, but to a collective faith where I must benefit from your spiritual gift and you must benefit from my spiritual gift. And this is what a healthy church looks like. At the very essence of Christianity is community. That we are to live the Christian life together in community. There's no anonymity in the body of Christ. No need for secret ballots in the body of Christ. Those are practices that the world cherishes and looks at because the world says, hey, it's okay to be hidden. It's okay if nobody knows. It's okay if I can just hide out alone. No, in the body of Christ, we come together because we want to know each other and we want to be known by one another. The church intentionally gathers to worship our great God through the reading of scripture, through communion, through prayer, through serving together. The body of Christ exists to mutually encourage one another, constantly looking around for things to be thankful for in one another. Things that we can encourage one another with. Things that we can just say, you know, I love you and I've been so encouraged by the way you've been serving. And you just need to know that when you stepped up and did that, it really impacted me. It, it really encouraged me. This is, what, this is what the church does. Because it reflects the unity of the Godhead as we just looked at during communion. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was Jesus' prayer for the church. That we would reflect the unity of God and it pains the heart of God. When this is not the case. Because it's sin to, to, to look for things that we can complain and grumble about rather than things we can encourage and be thankful for. You know, the church does not grumble and complain. God did not design the church to be interested in personal preferences or what I like. There's no me filter in the church, how something makes me feel on what I like. No, no. Those who care about such things, you know, there's the YMCA if you want to go there and complain and grumble and all that. No, the church must be different because the church is unified, looking for how we can love and encourage one another. It brings disunity and it distracts from the mission of the glorious mission that God has given the church if we do anything else. One of the things that I love about Central is just the excitement that's going on here. You know, as I talk to, to you and you come and talk to me, I mean, you need to know, if you're our guest this morning, there is excitement in this place. We're excited what God is doing. It's encouraging to be in the community of faith together and worship our great God together. The, the clear focus to share God's gospel here in our community and all over the world, it is exciting. And, you know, the, the methods, they're simply that. They're They're methods. It is the message, it is fidelity to scripture that is valued above all else. And this is what we see when God drew up the blueprints of a healthy church. There's intentionality in knowing people and being known by people. I was so encouraged Wednesday night just to hear the testimony of, of faithful ladies in our church who they, they got a calendar out and they're looking every birthday, every anniversary, whenever they can write cards, make a meal, they're doing that. Why? Because they want to live according to God's word. They want to encourage people. They want to use their spiritual gifts for the blessings of the body. And this is what the church is designed to do. The church is intentionally relational because God has designed us that way. And so the church, you see it, they're, they're together. 
They're waiting together. They're praying together. They, they are expecting God to do something amazing together. And then Pentecost happens. And in order just to re-enter that drama, I've got to kind of walk through some of the Jewish feasts with you because Pentecost was a Jewish celebration. So just to kind of walk it through and to back it up a little bit, first, uh, Passover. Look at pa- we'll think of Passover first because during Passover, the Jews celebrated their deliverance out of Egypt. And they did this by sacrificing lambs. It recalls the last plague in Egypt where you may remember where, where the believers, the faithful Jews, they would put the blood of lambs on the doorpost so that when the angel of death came, they would pass over those homes. Josephus, the, the Jewish historians, he says that during this first century Passover, how there were over 256,000 lambs who would be killed. I mean, you can just imagine Lambs just filling the streets as the Lamb of God entered the city. How the Lamb of God, just like all these lambs, had entered the city. He had come to die. Here he comes, the final sacrifice, the fulfillment of Passover. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians, For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And after Passover, there came the Feast of first fruits, the Feast of Weeks. This took place the first day after the Sabbath when, when the nation would celebrate the first crops that were brought in from the harvest. And the priest, he would take a sheaf of grain and he would wave it before God and he would give thanks because the, the seed that was dead has now become alive again and borne fruit. And they would give the first fruits, the, the, the first produce of their harvest as a sacrifice and offering to God in celebration of life. And as an act of trusting that God will continue to sustain life, that there will be more harvest to come. And it was during the first fruits, the, the feast of first fruits, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, producing life for all who would believe. Paul again wrote in 1 Corinthians that Christ has been raised from the dead and is the first fruits of those who are asleep. And 50 days later came Pentecost. Pentecost literally means 50th. And the focus on Pentecost was to celebrate the giving of the Mosaic Law. That the Mosaic law had been given. In the Old Testament, there were, there were rumblings of an earthquake as Moses went up on Mount Sinai and there was fire and there was smoke as God supernaturally communicated the law through the tablets of stone. But now, as, as Pentecost is being fulfilled, there are loud rumblings again as of a mighty wind. There is fire, and God is supernaturally communicating the message of grace through the lips of his new church. At the first Pentecost on Mount Sinai, God gave his holy law to produce a national conscience, a national awareness of sin. But here in this final Pentecost, the last Pentecost, God gave his Holy Spirit to produce an international church committed to the gospel of grace. And this understanding is so critical in the church today because there are some Christian traditions who are looking for the Holy Spirit to empower the church today to speak in tongues, that, that the 
last Pentecost would be fulfilled again in the church, the movement. It began in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, known as Pentecostalism. And the thinking is that, hey, the church today should look just like the church in the first century. So this is, this is where it started. And so Pentecostals, they looked at the gifts and, the, and how the gift, of, um, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. And the other time that you really see the gift of tongues and it really working out is uh, 1 Corinthians 14. And in both of those places, the gift of tongues is given for evangelistic reasons. So that the gospel can be clearly presented to those who speak other languages. So that God's supernatural ability to communicate his gospel could be on full display and the gospel could go forth. And so the Pentecostals in the early 1900s, they, they began to start mission trips, and they sent groups of people to China, and they said, hey, you don't need to worry about learning Chinese, because when you get there, God is just going to give you the gift of Chinese, and they go to China, but Chinese didn't show up with them. They come back, and they're confused, and they're a little bit disillusioned, and they're saying, hey, we, we, we couldn't speak Chinese. No, no one could understand our English. What's going on here? And so the Pentecostals looked at it, and they said, well, um, instead of tongues that people can understand, it must be the tongues of angels. And so they changed the purpose of the gift of tongues now to no longer be evangelistic, but to be a prayer language. See, with the birth of the Pentecostal church, what you need to understand is that they misunderstand God's purpose of tongues and what the Bible teaches about prayer. They've confused the two. And so to pray for Pentecost to happen again is kind of like praying for Passover to happen again. No, God has died. And it's kind of like praying for the Feast of Firstfruits to happen again. No, God has been raised. Jesus, the Son of God, has been raised from the dead. We don't need another Passover. We don't need another Firstfruits. We don't need another Pentecost. It has been fully and finally fulfilled through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the question is not, like, how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? Because when God gives the Holy Spirit, he gives it fully. There is no halfway baptism of the Holy Spirit. He has fully sealed you. He has fully empowered you. He has fully equipped you. This is how our God gifts his church. The question is not, we don't have to invite the Holy Spirit in. He is here. He's already here. If you know Jesus Christ, his spirit resides within you. You don't have to welcome him. He's here. He's present. The question is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have. The question is how much does the Holy Spirit have you? Are, are you living a life empowered by the Holy Spirit? Empowered to go out and have gospel conversations with those in your community, those outside of your box, those who are the difficult people who you thought you'd never talk to. Are you empowered to want to go and to have conversations with people in impossible places? Are you empowered to focus on the truth of Scripture? Above all else, above your likes, your dislikes, are you empowered to strive together for the faith of the gospel? Are, are you empowered to love your spouse the way you ought to love your spouse? Are you empowered to love your kids and to train up your kids and care more about their growing up and their loving God rather than just being their friend? Are you empowered to be a good student? Are you empowered to be single well? Are you empowered to serve well? God does not halfway gift his people. He has fully gifted his people so that we could be an example to the world of what a life committed to Jesus Christ looks like. It is evident in a healthy church.
There's this relational intentionality that everything about us looks to the Holy Spirit and says, God, empower us, your church, to love each other so that we could be known by our love for one another. And as the church went out, they meet together, and you have this incredible scene with tongues of fire separating and coming on the people. And then then they go out, and they begin speaking and proclaiming the gospel. Do you see it? you got people from all over, all over the globe, and they've gathered there for Passover and stayed through Pentecost. And now they've gone out, and they're talking to these people who speak all kinds of languages, and everyone's understanding everything. It's an incredible scene. And some are amazed because these are uneducated Galileans. How could they possibly be speaking these other languages? Some are confused and they're asking, what does this mean? What in the world is going on here? And others, they're ridiculing them. They're mocking them and they're saying, these men got to be drunk. They're full of some new wine here. It must be some pretty good stuff because I don't know what in the world this is. When you are powered by the Holy Spirit, You don't worry so much about the response of people. Your primary concern is your faithfulness to God. It's not so much, did I offend someone else? Yeah, we do everything we do with love, with gentleness and respect. But the primary concern is, did I offend God? The gospel, by its very nature, is offensive because it's telling people that they have a need, that they have an ultimate need. That they can't do this life by themselves. That they can't work their way to heaven. They can't earn their way to heaven. And people like to be self-sufficient. People like to think that, hey, I can do this on my own. I'm okay. I've got this. And at the very core of the gospel is, no, you can't. That you need your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, more than you need your next breath. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it speaks, and these variety of responses are taking place. And so in the midst of this, Peter, he stands up. And you need to remember that less than two months before, Peter offered this denial, a vigorous denial of Jesus. And now, less than two months later, he stands up and he delivers his first sermon. And he begins this sermon by rebuking the people. And he says, hey, these men aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Come on. He's like, they're not slurring their words. They're not stuttering. You understand them clearly. And he points them to Scripture. He says, consider what the prophet Joel said. This is fulfillment of what God has said. Now you're seeing it lived out. And then he goes on and he explains to them who Jesus is. You've got to see it. Acts 2, 22 to 41. Peter speaking says, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend, ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made, both, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Incredible. As God drew up the blueprints of a healthy church, a church that would have this transformational effect on culture and the world. Another mark here that we see is vibrant leadership. Vibrant leadership. You, you see it here. I mean, the Holy Spirit empowers Peter to, to stand up in a crowd with everybody kind of wondering and, and confused about what's going on. Peter stands up and he, and he addresses them bluntly, directly. And he says, hey, these guys aren't drunk. And then he goes on and he says, you crucified this Jesus. You killed this Jesus. He's not holding any punches. He's not trying to tickle their ears. He's not trying to be liked by anybody. He's trying to be faithful to the scriptures. And he draws them to the scriptures. He draws them first to the prophet Joel and then to David. See, this is what vibrant leadership does. It's what's happening here at Pentecost where Peter, he cares more about offending his God and being direct with his, the people who are out there so they clearly and fully understand what's taking place. Peter, this Christ denier, has become this Christ spokesperson. It's what God can do in, in, a, in a life of a person. That he can take those who are far off and he can draw them close and then he can use you to impact others for the cause of his kingdom. And he gathers the attention of these people and he draws them straight to the scriptures. You know, this, the staff here at Central is a staff you can be excited about. Brian with the children and Donnie with the teens and worship team and, and Ethan with the adults and Mrs. Stevens with the school. It's a staff, it's a leadership team 
that is committed to faithfully teaching the scriptures, to faithfully proclaiming the gospel. I mean, I can tell you that just this week, as we had a little meeting about trunk or treat, a primary concern to our leadership team was how are we going to effectively share the gospel at trunk or treat this year? I mean, what are we going to do to make sure that the gospel can be clearly understood and presented? But, but that's the focus of the team. How can we faithfully communicate the scriptures to equip the saints for the work of ministry? And we're asking God every week, hey, God, lead us, guide us as we lead your people. What a privilege. You know, as a leadership team, we love you. We love the church. We love our city. We love our world. And we are desperately pleading with God to use us, to impact us here, and then those hard places, those difficult places, and those impossible places. And this is what Peter's doing. I mean, he's so focused on the mission that he's been given to boldly proclaim the gospel, and then people interrupt him. He, he, he kind of gets to the end of his message, and, and people, they talk to him, but they're not just talking to him. Do you see? They're asking all the apostles, hey, what are we supposed to do with this, this message that Peter's given? How, how, how do we respond to a message like this? And they're asking Peter, and they're asking the apostles, they're asking those sitting around, how do we respond to this? And one, one great tradition and one love tradition in the church is, is an altar call. And many, the, 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 the biblical uh, defense that sometimes you hear for an altar call is right here in Acts chapter 2. But this is no altar call at all, at least not in the way that you see altar calls practiced today. Peter concludes this sermon, and then they ask. He doesn't call them for it or anything like that. They ask. And they're not just asking Peter. They're asking the crowds. They're asking the faithful apostles there, hey, what are we supposed to do with this? The altar call was a method, a method invented by the Methodists in the early 1800s. It was made famous by the evangelist Charles Finney. And Finney boasted that he could create such an environment that, that he, could, he could just uh, speak in such a riveting manner and capture anyone's attention that he could pull on the heartstrings. And then he could give an altar call and everyone would come forward and get saved. P, uh, Finney also claimed that... Um, that the atonement of Jesus Christ was not a substitutionary atonement, that it was merely an example of what faithful living looks like. He denied the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And Finney, he turned the concept of revival, which was once thought of as an unplanned supernatural work of the Holy Spirit into a planned natural work of, dedicated, of a dedicated man. The leading Baptist preacher and theologian at the time in the mid-1800s when the altar call became famous was a pastor and theologian by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And he said, hey, I'm not doing an altar call because an altar call can give people a false sense of assurance of salvation when there's no fruit of repentance in their life. He said in response to the altar call, what they want to, to do is to arouse man's activity. What we want to do is to kill it once and for all, to show him that he is lost and ruined, and that his, his activities are not now at all equal to the work of conversion, that he must look upward, 
They seek to make the man stand up. We seek to bring him down and make him feel that there he lies in the hand of God and that his business is to submit himself to God and to cry aloud, Lord, save, or we perish. We hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel he can do nothing at all. Another leading fundamentalist in the 1800s, B.B. Uh, Warfield, joined uh, uh, Spurgeon and saying, hey, one of the negative effects that can take place during this me- using this method that the Methodist and Finney uses is that it can give the church a faulty understanding of their mission, that the church might believe that the purpose of the church is to attract people to the church. And he said, may this never be. The glorious mission of the church is so much greater, so much bigger than that. The mission of the church is to share with people the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins and that he rose again, defeating sin and death on their behalf. And this is the, con- the, the conversations that we must empower our people to have. That it is the, the, me- the message of the preacher, the work of the preacher, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. To do less would be like to go out and say, hey, you got to come to FedEx Field. Come on, come to FedEx Field. But we know that the reason why it would be exciting to go to FedEx Field is because you get to watch the Redskins play and you get to feel the energy of the crowd and you get to ride the ups and the downs of the game and how things go. The reason why it's so exciting to come to Central, the reason why we love our church so much is because we can learn and grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this is the message that we get to proclaim to our community, that we love Jesus and that you can meet him here, that, 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 that here you can grow in him, that the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We must give people the why. Why come? Why be here? And as you desire to go and as you would live your life on mission as the church, you feel this compelling desire that, hey, I've got to get back to church on Sunday because I've been just spent all week. I've just been giving all week. I've been having gospel conversations all week. I need to go. I need to get back because it's only in the church where I get fed. It's only in the church where I'm encouraged, where I'm built up, where I'm equipped, where I'm able to keep living on mission and focused to do it again and again and again. And When you fail to live on mission, the desire to go to church, at least for the right reasons, begins to fade because we don't need it. We're not living on mission anyway. The role of the pastor is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. At Pentecost, the church saw over 3,000 added to her number as a result of the faithful proclamation of scriptures and as a result of the apostles out there just having conversations with people in the crowd and telling them, Peter says it boldly, loudly, but you got apostles too as men are asking, what do we do with this? And they're saying, repent and be baptized. This is what you must do. And this Holy Spirit who empowered Peter to stand up and the Holy Spirit who empowered the the apostles to have this conversation is the same Holy Spirit who empowers you and me today. We, We would not have these conversations if it were left to us because we'd be worried about offending someone 
We'd be worried about stepping on toes. We'd be thinking, I don't think I want to go there. That's too hard for me. That's too difficult for me. I I think I'd rather just kind of stay in the sidelines. I'd rather just live and let live. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do things that we never thought we'd do. If you were to tell Peter that he would be standing up in this crowd and that he would be telling them, you are the ones who crucified Jesus, I'm sure he would have denied it. He would have said, no, 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 you have the wrong guy here. But this is what happens when you live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. We look back at the church at Pentecost and we see the birth of this church as the Holy Spirit is given. I'm sure all of us would say, man, I'd love to be at a church like that. That's incredible. 3,000 in, in one day and believers together praying, united, known by their love for one another. A church where there's just excitement and growth spiritually, numerically. That's awesome. That's amazing. There's another story that pastors tell, and it's uh, theology might be a little shaky, but it goes something like this. There's a guy, he dies, he goes to heaven, and Gabriel's walking him around, and as he's getting a tour, he, he sees just a whole pile of cardboard boxes. And as he sees the pile of cardboard boxes, he's kind of shuffling through them and looking in them a little bit, and, and he thinks to himself, huh, that's all the stuff that I always wanted on earth, but I never got. I, I really wanted that stuff, I always wanted that, but I never, never got it. And so then he asked Gabriel, he says, Gabriel, what, what is all this stuff? What are all these boxes here? And Gabriel says, that's all the stuff that God wanted to give you, but you never asked for. What's that noise? Jesus says, it's going to be better for you because I'm sending the helper. He's here now to empower us to live lives that we never dreamt we could live. But do we really want him to empower our lives? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, faithful God. God, we thank you that you empower us to do things we never dreamt or imagined we could do. Um, That we could have conversations, difficult conversations, but conversations still had with love and with grace, with gentleness, with respect. God, forgive us for when we're more concerned about ourselves and not concerned about your mission. God, as we look at your church and we see these healthy marks of a a healthy church and the idea of, of this clarity of mission, this clarity of this glorious mission that you've given us, the prayerful dependence that we ought to have, this relational intentionality that we would be known by our love for one another, by our unity in the faith. And God, for vibrant leadership, God, help us to be a church like that so that we can represent you well to our community and beyond. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.